I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Fresh episode of Fish Bites, your regularly scheduled podcast show covering all things Miami Marlins. I am Eli Sussman, the managing editor at Fish Stripes. We are at fishstripes.com, at Fish Stripes, across all our social media channels on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, etc. Feeling pretty healthy right now myself, hoping the same is true for all of you guys taking the steps you need to uh, weather this storm that we're all going through as a global community right now. Uh, A bit of a bittersweet time to record a show. This should have been reacting to the opening series of the 2020 Marlins regular season. That has obviously been pushed back quite a way, in reality, at least a couple months away from getting things started at the major league level, if we do get started at all here in 2020. But at Fish Stripes, we're still keeping you entertained. We're still covering everything that there is to cover in, in real time, as well as creating our own exercises to analyze the team even further. And it's not just Fish Bites here on this podcast channel. We have uh, Earning Their Stripes, which is our show focused specifically on the top prospects and minor leaguers in the Marlins organization. We just published our longest episode ever of ETS. It was a two and a half hour conference call. I edited it, edited it down to about two hours and then split that into two separate episodes. But in total, about two hours of conversation you can hear right here on the same podcast channel of our updated Fish Stripes Top 30 rankings, looking at all the best prospects in the Marlins organization heading into 2020. Uh, it had been a few months since our previous update, so this reacts to some new information that we gathered over the offseason and by watching spring training games. It was a five-person conference call, including myself, Louis Davila, Ethan Badowski, Spencer Morris, and Ian Smith. All of them brought some great points to the table. If you haven't already listened to that, just a little bit of a tease right here for you. Uh, This clip was a great one from Spencer comparing Sixto and Jazz, the top two prospects in the Marlins organization at the moment. I think between him and Sixto, with Jazz, you're getting more upside on the top end, um, whereas Sixto is a higher probability guy. I think... More or less, barring like severe injury trouble, Sixto, if nothing changes with him, um, I think he's about a number three starter. If he does start to, uh, like Ethan was talking about, throw a few less strikes and work outside the zone a little bit more, I think he can um, improve upon that projection. And I think that's a realistic hope. And if I had to guess, I would think that's something that will happen with Sixto, and I think he can be closer to a number two starter. But with Jazz, I think you're talking about a guy who has like six win potential at shortstop, which is something that a very small number of players in the minor leagues can claim. Um, If his hit tool doesn't progress a great deal, He's probably more of like a three or four win player, but his power really just pops. Um, He has plus raw and he really gets to absolutely all of it. And he's a lot to stay up the middle defensively. So I think, I personally think his bat can be just like about a shade below average. And I think he'll draw his fair share of walks. So I think you're talking about a heart of the order hitter with very good defense at shortstop. That's a hell of a player. 
Later on in that episode, we covered first baseman Lewin Diaz, who shot up the rankings all the way to now number six in the Marlins system. So here's Lewis, followed by Ethan, talking about Lewin and uh, why we're so optimistic about his future with the team. My first time covering Jacksonville last summer, and I was so excited to go see Sixto Sanchez, and he's facing uh, the Twins uh, AA team. I think it's the Blue Wahoos. And this is when Lewin was still on that team. Sixto was absolutely dominating that game. I think he had only given up a couple runs in the first inning. He was cruising. But the only guy who was consistently barreling him was Lewin Diaz. And I hadn't really heard of him until that point. So I'm, I'm in the press box with a couple other Twins prospects that are taking down TrackMan data. And uh, the one I was talking to was Griffin Jacks. And I'm talking to him like, who is this guy? Like he he's hitting really well. And he said, watch out for this guy. And next thing you know, Marlins trade for him and he's popping up rankings again. And he's he hit 27 home runs last year and he just come out of no you never know who's gonna come. And yeah, there you go. So Marlins have their their first baseman of the future. And I think it's legit. I'm this guy, his presence at the plate, he's huge, he's intimidating, he hits pretty much anything. I think he's going to be a fantastic player for the Marlins. The Marlins are obsessed with him. Like, Mish always talks about how much the Marlins absolutely adore Lewin and how they think he's surefire number one, you know, the first baseman in the future. And so I think you just kind of got to trust the Marlins on that um, with how excited they are about this guy in terms of sending him up the boards. If they're excited about him, why are we not excited about him? You know what I mean? And he's produced. I mean, he came over and – hit a bunch of bombs and was tagging extra base hits every night. It seemed like so. Um, and the other factor is he's the only first baseman in the system, you know, for a long time, we were talking about moving some of the outfielders that weren't as strong defensively to first base just to give us a first base option. But now we have one and we have a really good one. Uh, I think he was ranked on pipelines, top 10 first baseman. He's probably like a fringe 100 prospect, uh, top 100 prospect right now, I'd say. So, yeah, I think you got to give him some credit and kind of give him a little boost just off of the, you know, kind of attention that he's getting from uh, within the major leagues. In part two of that top 30 episode, we covered shortstop Jose Salas, who was the biggest international signee by the Marlins last summer. And uh, even though he hasn't officially appeared in any professional games yet, shows extraordinary promise, as uh, Ian explains in this clip. I think Jose Salas is going to be a top 15 player in this in the system by midseason. I think he's got the potential to start the year in the GCL, probably be the youngest player in the GCL, but he's played stateside before, so he knows how to play over here. So I think he's got a real chance to be a higher prospect in, in, everybody's, in everybody's board. He has a grown grown man's body at 16 years old. He'll be in the same league that Nassim was in this year. Uh, I think he has the tools to be a, a 2020 type player when he's at his prime. Uh, he's he can play second, third, and short currently. I don't think he'll end up at short due to his size. But as an overall player and his potential and what he can do going forward, I really like Jose Salas as an overall player. And while we're on the topic of prospects, there was some news that came out on Saturday morning. Saturday at noon Eastern was uh, the rough deadline for teams to make any transactions before a freeze went into effect. And uh, doing any sort of roster maintenance that they wanted to, most teams actually jumped the gun on that, and they were doing it earlier this coming week. But the Marlins waited up to the last minute before optioning outfielder Monte Harrison and right-hander Nick Neidert down to AAA Wichita. Monte was number seven on our updated top 30 list, Neidert number 12. Both guys that have significant AAA experience, and if we do have any sort of 2020 season, health permitting, both of those guys will have some sort of role at the major league level during 2020. Uh, by optioning them now, it makes it seem pretty unlikely that they're going to be on the opening day roster, and that was already the expectation. Some service time manipulation consideration going on there, but uh, also the simple fact that you know, players with more experience that the Marlins are determined to find out about this year going with someone like Lewis Brinson on the active roster or Magnaris Sierra, these outfielders that have struggled in their major league action. And you want to see 
they've nothing left to prove in the minors, um, but they also with very discouraging results in the majors thus far. You want to find out everything you can about them at the show, and with just the flexibility that you have with guys like Harrison and Nider, it makes more sense to uh, focus on the guys that have more urgency to prove themselves in 2020. The same thing applies for Neidert. A whole bunch of rotation candidates that the Marlins have who are pre-arbitration eligible before the Marlins reach a point where you got to start paying these guys. They want to find out whether or not they're actually sufficient and can actually get players out. So Neidert presumably behind guys like Eliezer Hernandez and Jordan Yamamoto. It doesn't mean that he's an inferior starting option to those guys. Just for the time being, it, this is about managing and uh, staggering the talent that you have in your organization, especially heading into a year where in all likelihood the team isn't going to contend. You need to have other priorities when it comes to developing your team the right way. So there is an article on fishstripes.com by yours truly looking at how um, the the decision to option those guys and the outlook for them in the near-term future. But we're going to spend most of this episode talking about the new deal that reportedly was agreed to on Thursday night between the players and the owners in Major League Baseball about how to adjust for the likely to be shortened 2020 season. They had to strike a deal about changing some long-standing um, factors. They had to actually recalculate a lot of the business of baseball, understanding, really conceding that this regular season is not going to be 162 games, uh, not going to play all the games you wanted to, and perhaps not even being able to play those games at the locations they were planned to be playing at, with a whole lot of ripple effects that go all the way down to the amateur level. The deal was ratified and made official on Friday, and as I just mentioned, Saturday is when the transaction freeze went into effect so that we now have a number of weeks and possibly a couple months of silence on that end while the team simply wait out this coronavirus pandemic. If you're listening to Fish Bites, you are very likely partial towards the Marlins and very curious about how that team in particular is being affected by this new agreement between the, the players and the owners. That's what we're going to be covering, breaking down all these specific scenarios that are could be changed or will be changed because of how the season is being delayed and abbreviated. Um, a fair warning that... Most of this information is going to be frustrating that overall I feel like the Marlins are one of these teams that is going to be more negatively impacted by the delayed season, by the lost revenue, etc. than most other teams. So that is a little annoying, feels somewhat unfair at a time when the franchise has put so much effort into this rebuild and was just on the verge of turning that corner and taking steps to really contend on a consistent basis, which is something that we haven't gotten from this team at any point during its franchise history. And uh, these these circumstances simply throw a wrinkle into those plans. That's what I'll be explaining why uh, on a point-by-point basis is how all this is affecting um, in a frustrating way for the Marlins heading into the 2020 season, assuming that we do have a 2020 season. The first point is something that hasn't been entirely confirmed. It was Bob Nightingale of USA Today reporting that it's expected that the teams and the players will agree for expanded active rosters during the first month of the regular season. If we do get a regular season from 26 players up to 29 players. Uh, With Nightingale, he's been covering Major League Baseball in depth for decades broken plenty of great stories, uh, landed some exclusive interviews. He's, he's, he has had a distinguished career on the beat, but he's also had more than his fair share of gaffes, of uh, misrepresenting certain amounts of information, uh, occasionally just simply getting things wrong. At the moment, it hasn't been confirmed anywhere else that this plan will go into effect, but we're, we'll assume for our purposes that it will happen uh, that active ro- expanded rosters would be here. Uh, the rationale for that would be that both the players and the teams, we're going to get to that in a moment, it's in everybody's best interest to play as many games as possible, which would mean that when the season gets underway, 
You would see potentially pre-scheduled doubleheaders on a consistent basis in order to cram in more of those games without adding any additional traveling to it and simply removing off days as well. That is something that was reported in multiple places about how the teams and the players were looking at a rule that currently prohibits scheduling too many games on consecutive days, how both sides may be interested in lifting that limitation so as to schedule more games and to spread out the workload among more players on the active roster, where no player is put in a super dangerous position because the rosters themselves allow for more different lineup options and spreading out the pitchers in a way that they get sufficient rest, etc., on that topic, we do have a new article on Fish Stripes from Tyler Wilson looking at what the projected roster would be if it was a normal 26-man situation and how the three additional spots would change some of the decisions that the Marlins make, how they may use those extra spots to give themselves both a competitive advantage and a developmental advantage, putting players there that they feel are ready to break through to the show and may have not had room for those players under normal circumstances. Uh, separate from Tyler's article, you could check that out. Uh, in my opinion, the couple players on the Marlins that most clearly benefit from having expanded rosters would be uh, number one is Magnera Sierra. It was certainly trending in the direction that uh, the speedy outfielder was the odd man out for the Marlins. Uh, still so young <laughs> in his career, but such a limited player as well. There's good reason to believe that he'll never be uh, everyday starting outfielder uh, for any team. He's had very mixed results with the Marlins at the major league level. Doesn't impact the ball all that well, but does bring a lot to the table with his legs and with his defense. Uh, he could potentially help you win games, especially in the later innings as a super sub in those situations. If you have expanded active rosters, then it allows you for more maneuverability in games, more substitutions. He could be a guy, Sierra, that comes off the bench in high leverage situations, whether to preserve a close lead or to go on base and try to swipe a few bags, get himself in a better position to score. This is a type of player that if you have more specialized rosters um, and when you could justify having players in more limited roles because you have these extra spots, he's a guy that certainly would take advantage of that. He's out of minor league options. If the Marlins weren't going to put him on the active roster, they would attempt to trade him. And frankly, I don't think that trade value is all that high because that new acquiring team, he would also be out of options. You'd have to find some team that is willing to put him on the active roster or risk trying to run him through waivers and get through him that way. In any event, I think the best case scenario for the Marlins would be having these extra active roster spots, having more time to see this outfield hierarchy really play out because it's a very complicated mix. They have more outfielders than they can reasonably use at the same time, and this would simply bide them some more time to make the right decision at that position. And the second player that really benefits a lot would be Sterling Sharp, the Rule 5 draft pick. As a rule... Um, those players also cannot be optioned down to the minors during their first season after being a Rule 5 pick. If the Marlins want to keep Sharp long-term, you have to have him on the active roster for at least half the season, and uh, the other half of the season, the only alternative there is if he's injured and on the injured list. Assuming he's not injured, then that means you actually have to have him on the active roster and you have to use him at some point. When you have these additional spots, and presumably they would use one of those spots at least for a pitcher, and you have extra depth, that means you can, for uh, lack of a better word, hide the Rule 5 draft pick. Sharp has limited experience at AA and none at AAA level, so although he performed pretty well in spring training, um, there is a possibility that he's one of the weakest links on this roster for the 2020 season. The Marlins took him because they really like his long-term potential, uh, potentially someone that would get better and more acclimated to the team as the season goes on. You just want to put him in a position early on in the season where he has the best chance to be successful and isn't overwhelmed by the big jump in competition level. So these extra active roster spots would make it all the more certain that he makes the team. I think the percentages of him making the roster uh, before all these complications, it was like a 96, 97% chance. It was almost a lock that he was going to be on the team anyway, but this makes it 100, 100% chance that he's going to be on the Marlins roster to begin the season. 
and uh, barring a truly disastrous performance early in the year, he'll, he'll be a Marlin for the rest of 2020 and hopefully seven year, several years beyond that. Meanwhile, off the field, we need to be realistic about how revenue is being impacted across the majors and especially for the Marlins. Pretty well accepted that the Marlins are a low-revenue team in Major League Baseball right now. Historically, they've constantly had issues with their attendance numbers, and especially for the last decade or so, they've been strapped to this very poor regional television deal. They get paid out less money from the television network from Fox Sports Florida than any other major league team gets from their own network partner. And uh, that contract was up for renegotiation after this coming season, heading into 2021. That revenue should be growing, but this throws such a wrench into those plans. Uh, For one, the Marlins probably aren't even going to get their full payout from Fox Sports Florida. It's supposed to be about $20 million this year, but if you have an abbreviated schedule and fewer games being broadcast, I have to imagine that the networks are not going to pay out the same amount of money for those broadcast rights because they're, they don't have as much content to fill at the moment. What, um, the abbreviated, what, what's the word I'm looking for? The Fox sports Florida has improvised by re-airing a lot of 2019 games on their network right now on a daily basis, re-airing the wins from the Marlins 2019 season, but that just draws a fraction of the audience that a actual live Major League Baseball game would in that same situation. And on the attendance side, if you simply have fewer games to attend, um, uh, I suppose each individual game takes on some added importance, but also facing the reality that there would be more double headers in the situation of an abbreviated season, um, that those are more games that it's just going to be difficult to really maximize the attendance at each of those turnouts if some of them are scheduled um, at inconvenient hours for the typical consumer. And all that really hurts the Marlins moving forward because they entered this year um, with one of the lowest payrolls in baseball. I think entering all this craziness, they were in the low $70 million range, 70 to $73 million or so, slightly lower payroll than the previous season and much lower than what Jeffrey Loria maintained his final couple years in charge of the team. They were inevitably heading for a spike in 2021 because, uh, I mean, of foremost importance, the team was interested in contending as we head into 2021. They have so many of these premium prospects that are about to break through to the show. And if just a few of them really hit and fill some positions of need, then all of a sudden you're just looking for some complimentary veterans on the free agent market or via trades to plug the final holes and really get this team in an exciting place. But if the Marlins are not going to make as much money as usual from fans and from TV and from sponsors because of the limited inventory of games in 2020, and I think more importantly, and we're going to get to this coming up later, is how if you have a shortened season, then you have fewer opportunities for these young prospects to actually play in the majors. It's a shorter schedule. Uh, the thinking heading into 2020 is that the Marlins acquired some really interesting veteran players, such as Jonathan VR, Jesus Aguilar, Corey Dickerson, Brandon Kinsler, and in a best-case scenario, a couple of those veterans perform great early on in the season. Uh, the prospects behind them in the farm system show themselves to be ready for a new challenge, and then you trade those veterans to open up roster spots for the younger talent to get promoted and move into those roles and try to prove themselves at the major league level. If you have a shortened season, then, I mean, what does that even mean for what the midseason trade deadline would be? How much would, in a couple of these cases, especially with Aguilar coming off a, a down year, and he really needed some time during the first half of a regular season to establish himself as a very valuable power hitter. Teams would not be valuing him at that level without having a significant sample size during the regular season to really prove that. So this throws all that, uh, makes it really complicated. If you just have fewer games to work with, it just, it doesn't give you as many opportunities to audition these veteran players. And you simply don't have the innings and the at-bats to fit in as many players as possible 
As mentioned earlier, though, we have that Bob Nightingale report that early in the season, you have extra roster spots. So you could see some young players that are on the roster to begin with who wouldn't be in the first place. They're just not going to have those everyday roles. That That's the whole point of having premium prospects is that you project them to be everyday players someday, and you'd like to see them get consistent reps as everyday players for some stretch of time during the season. The, the fewer games really hurt that development for them, and it, it just delays everything. You know, the Marlins were trying to learn so much about these young prospects at the majors in 2020, and it just puts everything on delay. It really restricts the all the different decisions that you can make and how you can rotate in players during different segments of the season. Just getting back to the earlier point about revenue. If you have less revenue, the Marlins have committed for the time being to pay a lot of these uh, seasonal employees, game day operations employees, um, for the next couple months. And that's the right thing to do. But realistically, it, it does limit the the profit that the team is making. So if you have less revenue and you're still paying some of these same expenses, then and the team wasn't really set to contend in 2020 anyway, you could see uh, them using it as an excuse to just not spend what they were expected to do during free agency during this upcoming winter. This was supposed to be the time when they finally make a big splash. To this point, the biggest expenditure in free agency under new ownership is Corey Dickerson, and that was only $17.5 million over two years. That's relative peanuts for teams that, when you get involved in free agency and you're actually looking to fill everyday roles with some of those decisions. So just to sum up, when you have these revenue challenges because of the lack of product to sell to the network, to your sponsors, and to your fans, it just puts this Marlins rebuild on a bit of a delay. So that's the frustrating part because the fans have been so patient to this point and we've seen a lot of positive indications and then this unprecedented situation hits and throws things a little bit off course. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Another point on the major league level is service time. Service time is very important. It gets, um, it's perhaps not always very easy to follow. <laughs> it's not as sexy to follow as players' game stats and um, all the transactions that happen, but service time um, really has an effect on a lot of the transactions that we see. I mean, the most clear of impact of service time is free agency. Once you achieve six full years of major league service or very, very close to six full years of service, then you qualify to be a free agent. The Marlins made a prominent trade during the offseason to acquire Jonathan VR from the Baltimore Orioles. They barely gave up anything to get him, just one low-level pitching prospect, and the commitment for VR was very manageable, just a one-year deal that ended up being uh, over $8 million for this one season, coming off a year where he was one of the more valuable middle infielders in baseball. The Marlins, during spring training, intended they shifted him to center field, and but they really saw him as more of a... They really loved his versatility overall, so they see him as a guy that can play a number of different positions during the season, but be in the lineup every single day in the leadoff spot. A dynamic player, a dynamic player that is really built for the modern age because of his versatility. VR gets into one. He drills one high. He has hit it deep to right field. It's way back there, and it's gone for a two-run home run. Jonathan VR touches a two-run shot off his former teammate David Hess. And the Marlins pull within one run. Based on the terms of this coronavirus deal between the MLB players and owners, we know that VR will be a free agent after the 2020 season no matter what. He was already well over five years of service time. He just needed a partial season in the majors this year in order to become eligible for free agency. This is his currently his last year as an arbitration-eligible player. He obviously had a full year of service time the previous season, 
and he's someone that is far enough in his career in terms of service time that he can't be sent down to the minor leagues at any point. And even if he's hurt, he continues to compile service time while on the injured list. In the event of a canceled season, then the service time situation reverts back to whatever happened during the 2019 season. So with VR, he not only was on the Orioles roster every day of the 2019 season, he actually played every single game of that season. Players like him will continue to be credited with a full year of service time, even if no season is played, which creates the unusual situation, frustrating situation that he could, in the event of a canceled season, he could head into free agency without ever actually having to play for the Marlins. The Marlins would still have traded away that young pitcher, Easton Lucas, and uh, they would still pay VR a small portion of that salary that they had agreed with him to for the 2020 season, but they wouldn't actually get him on their on the field for any regular season games. He'd be able to head into free agency. The Marlins would have the right to extend a qualifying offer to him, but that offer would be well north of $17 million. And so certainly no guarantee that the Marlins would be taking that kind of risk to try to um, lock him up or try to even attach him to draft pick compensa- compensation. The bottom line is he's he's a guy that everybody was so excited about and a deal that the Marlins seemed to get a very reasonable, very efficient trade that they made. And it could all be for naught if, for whatever reason, uh, the country struggles to handle this pandemic and health officials aren't willing to let the season go on in any form. A couple other players affected in small ways, potentially, by the service time situation are Lewis Brinson and Eliezer Hernandez. Both of them have well over one year of service time. Brinson, one year and 115 days. Eliezer Hernandez, one year and 118 days. They are pre-arbitration eligible, but if they're able to get a full year of service time in the majors this year, they have a shot, an outside shot, of Super 2 status. They have a chance of reaching arbitration early, even without three full years of service and they'd be able to go through the arbitration process a maximum of four times. This is really a footnote in all this. One, considering that both Brinson and Hernandez, they spent some time in the minors last year. They did not get a full year of service time in 2019. So if the season is canceled, then they're only credited with a partial season of service time in 2020, and they wouldn't qualify. The only possible way they qualify for this Super 2 status and get paid a little bit earlier is if they are the season goes on in 2020, and they spend virtually every single day on the Marlins' active roster. And, I mean, the other point, frankly, is that neither guy has been all that consistently successful in the majors. If Brinson gets to arbitration early, and even if he has his best year yet in 2020, but is still you know, not overall that much of an impactful player at the major league level, then all that does is it extends the possibility that he could be non-tendered, that the Marlins might be able to might be leaning towards getting rid of him in the same way they did JT Riddle uh, this past winter. Riddle reached that Super 2 status. He did not have a particularly good year. He was in line to get a raise of several hundred thousand dollars through the arbitration process, and the Marlins simply parted ways with him for that reason. With Hernandez, it's it's kind of a similar story. I think he's shown much more promise at the major league level than Brinson has, but he doesn't have the same prospect pedigree, and we know how much pitching depth the Marlins have in the high minors. So if he's in a situation where he's earning several hundred thousand more, where he's earning seven hundred or eight hundred thousand total as a salary for the twenty twenty one season, then uh, that's another that once again will push the Marlins into potentially getting rid of him rather than paying extra for a guy that they don't see as a true featured player in their rebuild. Moving on to the minor league level and pretty far down in the minor league level, this is most devastating for both amateur prospects and short season prospects. We do, I mean, we don't know for sure if there's going to be any 2020 Major League season, but of course the benefits to Major League teams is that it is a wildly profitable industry. Under normal circumstances, these owners are billionaires, even in the case of the Marlins, so they can withstand uh, what is an extremely difficult fin- economic time uh, across the entire world, and especially in the U.S. The owners can withstand that, 
a lot of these veteran players can extend that. I mean, part of the deal that reached between the players and the MLB owners is that players got a bit of a payment advance. They got a small portion of their salaries already advanced to them into their bank accounts, uh, even though games haven't started. And even without a commitment that games have been started, it was so, sort of a, a down payment to the players to give them some sort of income, even in these very uncertain times. But the minor league players are not part of the union in most cases, especially the ones that are the ones that are not on any 40-man roster, the ones that have very recently entered the professional ranks. Their interests are not being represented by the negotiations and not being represented by the unions. This is an absolute killer for the minor league teams because, yeah, aside from not having any union representation, the team owners themselves, most of these minor league affiliates are owned privately by individual owners, not owned by the teams. And for them, when they miss games, which is going to be a reality for them too, the minor league season was due to open in early April, and that has already been pushed back significantly. Um, they don't have these same kind of profit margins that the major league teams do. They don't have individual television contracts. They don't earn nearly as much from sponsorships. And uh, obviously, they don't earn as much for selling tickets. They're, they're pricing at the minor league level is aimed at being very affordable to families in order to woo them in to games that don't have the same consequences as major league games. They need all the scheduled games they could possibly get. And for as much work as they put in with creative promotions and um, in discounts, etc., they really need to play as many games as possible. And circumstances are going to make that extraordinarily difficult this year. Uh, the more important context for all this is that after the 2019 season, Major League Baseball and Minor League Baseball um, had exchanged some very preliminary proposals about how to change the professional baseball agreement, which is going to expire after the 2020 season. It's looking to make some very dramatic changes to the way that Minor League Baseball is organized which ha a format that really hasn't been changed at all in 30 years and is overdue for some dramatic shifts. One quote-unquote solution that had already been proposed by Major League Baseball is eliminating over 40 minor league franchises, particularly ones in small towns, ones that have some limitations in terms of travel and facilities for these developing prospects. And in the case of the Marlins, the two affiliates that are very vulnerable would be the low-A Clinton Lumber Kings in the Midwest League and the short-season-A Batavia Muck Dogs, who participate in the New York Penn League. Batavia has been a Marlins affiliate since 2013. Clinton just started as an affiliate last year and had some good times. Uh, but uh, Clinton is in the middle of nowhere, Iowa. Batavia is in upstate New York. Both places that have, have struggled on the attendance front, struggled to draw crowds, and um, again, some concerns about the level of facilities and whether they're putting these players in the best chances to be successful while they're developing on the farm. It's hard for me to imagine a scenario where those franchises are still around in 2021. Again, they were both on this list already one of the ones that were singled out by Major League Baseball as as teams that were not quite up to the standard that Major League Baseball is looking for in terms of player development amenities. And now you're they're losing a lot of revenue, as, as everybody is, but these are places that probably don't have strong profit margins at all. They're especially in troubled times here in 2020 because of the delayed season and what's going to be some lost games. I I just don't see how they survive. If you are a baseball fan in either of those places, my suggestion is just to cherish every moment you can from the 2020 season because the future is extremely murky for them. We wrap up this discussion by looking at the consequences for Marlins amateur scouting, both domestically and internationally. You know that the Marlins have certainly ramped up their spending internationally over the past couple years, uh, most notably by signing the Mesa brothers after the 2018 season, and then they had a couple other big splashes during the 2019-2020 international amateur free agent period. Uh, a guy we referenced on earning their stripes, Jose Salas, the young shortstop they spent several million dollars on. 
Junior Sanchez, Ian Lewis, uh, a couple really projectable pitchers as well. Overall, the Marlins spent, I think, about $6 million internationally on over, over a dozen amateur players that they're trying to develop, uh, first at their Dominican Academy and very soon at, moving over to the U.S. and playing at low-level affiliates. Uh, so, I mean, one consequence already is that when you have uh, this potential seismic change to minor league baseball and short season affiliates going away entirely, it means that these players will be developing kind of in the dark for a couple of years. When you have someone that's only 16, 17 years old, you don't put them immediately at a full season level. And if these short season affiliates are likely going to go away in 2021, that means these players will be playing in what you'd call the backfields at the spring training facility. They'd be playing without crowds um, in a different kind of atmosphere that doesn't necessarily prepare you in the best possible way for success at the major league level. And it's it's just a much different atmosphere, uh, a different level of intensity without literally being under the the spotlight and having to play games in front of a, a live audience in the same way that you're accustomed to doing. So the developmental process is very different for these international players moving forward. And these are these are areas where the Marlins have invested very heavily in, both in terms of signing those players and also they apparently have the construction of a new academy in the Dominican Republic underway that cost millions of dollars trying to upgrade the facilities over there so they're making big investments in these international players and now um, you're trying to adapt your entire player development philosophy once because when you bring these players to the u.s their timeline looks a lot different than it ordinarily would in previous years for players acquired this way and one of the biggest talking points of all this is the mlb draft where the marlins of course, made uh, a lot of waves last June in the 2019 draft. They held a number four overall pick, and they just received acclaim for the way that they balanced their bonus pool, uh, acquired a handful of really impactful players, filling a lot of holes in their organization, and uh, the early returns from a lot of those players were extremely encouraging during the back half of the 2019 season. Then in 2020, they're poised to have they were poised to have the exact same kind of draft. They held the number three overall pick by virtue of losing 105 games at the major league level. Uh, bonus pools going up a little bit more. They were supposed to uh, again. This was supposed to be one of their biggest investments for all the money that they're saving on the major league level by trimming major league payroll uh, during this rebuild. They're trying to reallocate a lot of those funds towards the amateur level and trying to invest, trying to scout as best you can and invest in these players that you hope will be cornerstones of your franchise moving forward. We had already started a lot of coverage of the 2020 draft on Fish Stripes, looking at all the possibilities, not just with the top overall pick, but some sleepers that you can find in the later rounds as well, and they're fit with the Marlins organization. This was supposed to be a huge milestone of this rebuild, this upcoming draft. And what we've learned from the renegotiated 2020 agreement between the MLB players and the owners is that they did agree to maintain the draft and keep the draft going. So that was actually a question heading into the negotiations as to whether there would be a draft at all, considering that the college and the high school baseball seasons were dramatically shortened by this coronavirus outbreak. You don't have quite the same material to evaluate these players on that you usually do and especially their proximity to the draft. You know, you like to learn about these players as best you can as the draft approaches. And in this situation, whether the draft is held as originally scheduled in June or the possibility that's been mentioned about pushing it back to July, these players will be several months removed from playing meaningful games and in that kind of setting between that last game and when they'll actually be selected and signed to these big bonuses. The draft over the last few decades has been 40 rounds long, which I think a lot of people agreed was too long in the same way that the minor league baseball system was perhaps outdated and they had more teams than they knew what to do with. Uh, this has also been something that was mentioned prior to 
all these complicated circumstances, it seemed that there was definitely momentum heading towards shortening the MLB draft no matter what happens. But this situation with MLB teams uh, lacking the kind of revenue that they usually would and with these negotiations between the owners and the MLB players who don't represent these prospects, these amateur prospects are not represented by the players' union, that the deal that they reached between these two sides really screws over the amateur players, and it hurts the teams disproportionately that are relying on these amateur players to help them. It hurts the Marlins more than it would a typical team. Last year, uh, every well, every team has what you call a bonus pool, which is how they allocate the different money to be spent on amateur players. Uh, there's one internationally, but specifically with the draft, each draft position has a certain slot value attached to it through the first 10 rounds. Each of those top 10 round picks have a certain slot value, and um, then there's some room to spend in the later rounds as well if, if a guy slides for whatever reason. Uh, there are just so many options for how you can manage your funds uh, under the old system when you had 40 rounds to work with. Realistically, not going to sign every single player and um, don't necessarily have the faith in every one of those players to be a major leaguer. But now the system is dramatically changing in that for 2020, it's going to be shortened from 40 rounds to as few as five. The exact number of rounds haven't been set yet, but the owners have been given the rights to limit it to as few as five rounds and uh, we're going to see exactly how that changes as we get closer to the potential start of the season but the bottom line is it's going to be a dramatically different draft players who aren't drafted in those first five rounds they have an opportunity to sign as undrafted free agents for a maximum of twenty thousand dollar signing bonuses Uh, the reality is is that almost any player that has a chance to be drafted in these middle or later rounds um, that now has some uncertainty about their the kind of bonus that they're going to receive, you're going to see a lot more players who are in high school that choosing to attend college when they ordinarily wouldn't, or you might even see some underclassmen in college who were draft-eligible sophomores or juniors. Those players may choose to stay in school a year longer because of the possibility that hopefully the 2021 draft will once again have some additional rounds to it and resemble the old system in some way Uh, because currently this is squeezing out literally hundreds and hundreds of players that were expected to get drafted and now won't be in 2020 when it's limited to five rounds including compensation picks it's fewer than 200 overall selections fewer than 200 overall picks potentially in this upcoming draft if the owners choose to shrink it to that degree to reiterate, the main motivation for this is for the owners to save money. They're worried about their revenue, so they don't want to commit too much to these amateur players, the most of whom, uh, frankly, won't reach the major leagues. That's simply playing the percentages. And at a time when they're worried about their bottom lines, they don't want to be making these commitments to drafted players at the same scale they ordinarily would. Last year, the Marlins spent more than $18 million on drafted players. But my understanding is that if this draft is shortened to five rounds, the Marlins bonus pool will only be $12 million. Uh, to be very specific, 11977000 Usually, the, the slot value of these picks, the bonus pools overall, they expand a little bit year to year as the league itself continues to increase its revenue. That's not going to be the situation this year. Instead, with the expectation that these pick values and the bonus pools are going to remain flat year to year, where all these picks are earning the same amount of money that they did if they were drafted in 2019. And for the Marlins, this would mean uh, there's a possibility that they have only six total selections that first round pick, the competitive balance pick, and then ordinary picks that they would have in the second, third, fourth, and fifth rounds. So in a situation where they're limited to five rounds, the Marlins bonus pool shrinks by about $6 million than they had last year. And that just doesn't give you the same kind of flexibility that they had in 2019. They had the flexibility to go over slot value at a handful of positions where they they pick guys who had some signability concerns and they gave those players exactly what they needed in order to forego any eligibility and sign and turn pro and that this just removes a lot of possibilities for them if you just don't have as many room uh, rounds to pick from then uh, you don't have as much to 
uh, as many possibilities. You, you can't always just target these players that you thought were the perfect fit for your organization at this time. On the bright side, there is going to be a draft in some shape or form in 2020 that is important for the Marlins. You know how much pressure they're on to get this rebuild done correctly, and the players being acquired in this draft are very instrumental to the shape of the organization moving forward. You want to get these players into your farm system as quickly as possible, working with them individually and getting them in a position to actually play in real minor league games for further evaluation about how their skill sets translate to professional baseball. And a delay would have been really painful. That would have made it even worse for this team because you're hoping that these players, uh, especially the ones drafted out of college, are going to be ready to impact you at the major league level in a few short years. That this window of contention that the Marlins were hoping to open early in this decade, whether it's 2021 or 2022, um, that that window is going to stay open for a handful of years in large part from these players that you are drafting now, and you're drafting them with the luxury of coming off years where you had premium draft position. You lose these major league games during the rebuild in order to get this preferable draft position, in order to get these large bonus pools to maneuver with, and then you're able to get the kind of players you want, get them through the system quickly, and get them up in the majors uh, at a time where they're all very affordable relative to their production, and you're able to put together this well-rounded team that can hopefully compete with some of the larger market teams and give this Marlins franchise a chance at sustainable success that they haven't really had before. So it's a positive that there's going to be some sort of draft in this situation, but um, the shortening of it and, again, so many of these other consequences of the pandemic and of the agreement that Major League Baseball has reached um, to adjust to the shortened season, uh, it's really painful for the Marlins. And uh, it's going to force them in a position where they're going to have to get creative and they're going to have to bank on some of these players to really overachieve. Thank you, as always, for tuning in to Fish Bites with me, Eli Sussman. More coverage coming up next week, the following week, the week after that. For however long this delay lasts, we're going to be here for you to talk about all things Marlins. Got some ideas already floating around about some guests we'll be bringing onto the show, as well as co-hosts from within my own staff. And more importantly, ways for us to collaborate with the fans, get your questions, get your ideas, and incorporate them into the show. Be safe and go fish.